this week we are going to look at living with purpose. Do you have a purpose in life? Have you set goals? What is your vision for yourself, your family, your children, your life? Uh, that's what we're going to be thinking about this morning. And uh, we're going to start with a question, just some self-evaluation here. And the question is, are you a flounderer or are you an archer? I'll explain those terms as we go through them. The first one, are you a flounderer? And I think flounderer is a word, but my spell check and my word processor says it's not. But I'm basing this on the word flounder, uh, the verb to... Uh, the idea of struggling clumsily without making any progress. Maybe that word is based on the fish. And picture a fish out of water flopping around on the ground, to and fro, getting nowhere, making no progress. That's what it means to flounder. So is that you in life? Are you a flounderer? Do you flop back and forth with no aim, no purpose, not knowing where you're going or where you came from, what you want to do? lacking ambition, motivation. If, if you are, it's a very common problem. And uh, this lesson will be very important for you, I think. Now, let's look at some examples of floundering just to get a picture of what we're talking about. And one is in 1 Kings chapter 18. Elijah is dealing with the nation of Israel. And Israel is floundering back and forth between Baal a false god, but a very popular god in that time, and the true and living God. And this sets up the great contest on Mount Carmel between Elijah and the prophets of Baal. But before that, Elijah asked this question in 1 Kings 18.21. It's translated in a variety of ways. Here's how the ESV puts it. How long will you go limping between two different opinions. If the Lord is God, follow him, but if Baal, then follow him. It may be that Elijah's mocking worshipers of Baal and the way that they limped in their worship practices and their dances or whatever. And there are other things that might be going on in that language, but the basic idea is there that they're going back and forth between Baal and God, thinking that they can please all sides and be a part of all things. And he's saying, you're purposeless. You're floundering around. And not only that, but in some very important areas relating to faith and religion. Uh, another example we've looked at a little bit on Wednesday nights is King Saul. Uh, the predecessor to David, the first king of Israel. His aimlessness carried him in different directions. Um, for example, with regard to David, one minute he supports David, he's a big champion of David, the next he's trying to kill him, uh, to pin him to the wall with a spear. Uh, you'll see him as a leader of an army, and one minute he's bravely leading his troops into battle victoriously, and the next, he's running and hiding in caves. Uh, as an enforcer of the law, uh, one minute he's condemning witchcraft, which was condemned by the law of Moses. The next minute, he's visiting a medium at Endor to 
speak with Samuel, who's already died, and trying to bring him back from the dead. So Saul just seemed to be engaging in situation ethics. Whatever the situation called for, he would bend and warp his personality and character to fit that mold. He was a flounderer. Pilate was a classic flounderer. He asked Jesus in John 18:38, "What is truth?" That's the question people are asking today, cynically saying, "There is no truth. There are no absolutes. You, know, you can have your truth and I can have mine, and we can live together in harmony in society, believing very different things and not upholding any standard. That, that was Pilate's cynical point of view to Jesus in Jesus' Roman trials. What is truth? He knew Jesus was innocent. In uh, Matthew 27, 18, the writer says that he, he knew it was out of envy that they had delivered Jesus over to be crucified. The motivation was not justice. And then three times in John, uh, I think once in John 18 and twice at the beginning of John 19, Pilate declared Jesus innocent. I find no guilt in this man. He said that to the crowd three times, but he's the one that delivered Jesus over to be crucified. And he called for the basin of water and washed his hands in front of everybody saying, I'm innocent of this man's blood, but He's the one that could have stopped it, and he didn't. And that's floundering, trying to please everybody, not having your own position, not living a principled life, just going back and forth. And Pilate did that. One last example of the floundering. Uh, go to Acts chapter 2, verse 40. The end of Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost that launched the church. Uh, after telling the crowd to repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins, he says in verse 40, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. The word crooked is translated from a Greek term, scolios. Uh, maybe you've heard of scoliosis, or you uh, had your children checked for scoliosis at school. That was always a fun test to see if you have a crooked spine. So the word has to do with crookedness, not a straight line, but meandering back and forth, floundering around. Uh, if you have the King James Version, the word used there is an unusual English word, untoward. Untoward. We don't use that anymore, but it means basically not going toward any particular point which is what floundering is. Save yourselves from this untoward generation, this crooked generation. The age or the culture in which Peter lived is very much like our own. It has no direction. Floundering about. And a lot of people are a part of this generation. They've allowed the culture to seep into their person and uh, they're floundering about. They don't know who they are or what they're all about or where they're headed. It's kind of like a man asking for directions. And then when he's asked, well, where are you trying to go? He can't give the answer. That'd be a very embarrassing conversation, wouldn't it? 
Well, that's the life that a lot of us are leading. And uh, in this lesson, we're going to try to get some ideas on how to get out of that. Now, the opposite of that, and what God wants for us, is to be an archer. Maybe you've heard the old story about the woodsman who was renowned for having perfect accuracy. And uh, a passerby asked him how it was that he became such a great archer. And he said, well, I shoot my arrows into the woods, and when one hits a tree, I go and draw a bullseye around it. I think a lot of people try to live that way. They just, um, they just decide in resignation to end up wherever life threw them. Whatever situation you wind up in, well, I guess that's who I'm going to be. I guess this is where I'm going to live. I guess this is what I'm going to be about. And that's not what a good archer does. A good archer has a bullseye, he shoots for it, and he keeps working until he can hit it with 100% accuracy. Jesus was an archer. Jesus, throughout his ministry, stayed focused. He always had a sense of purpose. Uh, you can look at it this way. He had a beginning and a middle and an end to his purpose. And he stayed focused through the beginning, the middle, and the end. And there's a, there's a verse that goes with each stage of that. For example, go to um, John 18, verse 37. He speaks of the beginning. And listen to what he says. Uh, to Pilate. Pilate's asking him, are you the king of the Jews? Are you a king? And this was Jesus' answer in John 18, 37. You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I've come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. So in the beginning, what was his purpose? He states it explicitly there. To bear witness to the truth. Truth was his purpose. This is why Pilate said, what is truth? And Pilate was trying to challenge Jesus' mission. You're fighting for something that doesn't exist, is kind of what Pilate was saying. But Jesus said, I came into the world for truth from the beginning. You see that? When I started out, when I launched my ministry, it was all about truth. He maintained this purpose in the middle. So let's go to John 12. Look at John 12, 27 through 28. This is the part of John's getting into, uh, some people call it his private ministry. It's basically approaching the evening before his crucifixion. This is right before the Last Supper his uh, trials in the Garden of Gethsemane, his arrest. And he says this in John 12, 27, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I've come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, I've glorified it, and I will glorify it again. Now he's in the middle of his trials. As I said, he's about to go into the garden to pray where he will be arrested, tried, and uh, the next day crucified. 
And so his soul is troubled. But that's not going to make him waver. He's going to stay focused on track. And then look at his end. We'll go to Romans 14.9. That's a good verse to attach to his focus on the end of his purpose. For to this end, Christ died and lived again. He was crucified and resurrected. That he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. So his death wasn't the end of the purpose. If you just speak of the gospel in terms of death, you haven't finished the gospel. The good news is the death, burial, and the resurrection. And that's why he went to the cross, is to complete the work in the resurrection and ascension. And he had that end in mind the whole time. Another good verse to look at is Hebrews 12, verse 2, which says that for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So the joy set before him, he went to the cross. He didn't have his mind on the nails, on the crown of thorns, on the scourging, on the mockery. When he was on the cross, he was thinking about his victory and resurrection and the joy that he would bring to the world through redemption. So that's, that's very, very important to look at how he saw this from beginning to end. There was a beginning, a middle, and an end, and he stayed focused through that whole thing. He was an archer, not a flounderer. Read through the Gospels. Notice how focused he stayed. How many times did he go out to pray? He would just stop his ministry and its tracks to go out to a desolate place and pray. Why did he do that? He did that to calibrate, to regain focus, to get his mind in the right place, to stay on track. And those kind of practices that kept him on track will keep us on track as well. So ask yourself, am I a flounderer or an archer? And more than likely, you're a little bit of both. Uh, this is on a spectrum with floundering on one end and archery on the other. Where are you on that spectrum? Are you close to, closer to the archer's side or the flounderer's side, and what do you need to work on? I'm sure all of us could work a little bit on our focus, so we're going to talk about that. And one of the reasons we're going to do that is life without a purpose is really, really hard. In the short term, it's easy not to stop and think about what you're all about. Those are hard questions, but your life in general is missing something if you lack purpose. Um, in his book, The House of the Dead, Dostoevsky says this, that if one desired to reduce a man to nothing, if one desired to punish him atrociously, to crush him in such a manner that the most hardened murderer would tremble before such a punishment and take fright beforehand, one need only render his work completely useless even to the point of absurdity. Now, he, he, uh, he really made his point there, right? You know, if, if you want to scare somebody, even the most hardened criminal, the most hardened murderer, the thing that would scare him more than anything else is the thought that his life was lived for nothing. 
that it's all been absurd. Uh, Dostoevsky is often included among philosophers called existentialists, and existentialists deal with the problem of absurdity and trying to find meaning in life. I think he's a little different because he believed in God and he believed in Christ, and so he, he sought meaning through, through faith, whereas a lot of atheistic existentialists said there is absurdity and you just kind of make up your meaning, make up your purpose all along. We don't have to make it up. You know, God has given us purpose. Without it, life can be very difficult. Have you heard of the myth of Sisyphus? This is a picture of it. Sisyphus was this man who angered the gods by revealing secrets to mortals. And so the gods came up with this ingenious punishment. He was doomed for the rest of his existence to roll a heavy stone up to the top of a hill only to have it roll back down again and he'd start over and roll it back up. Up and down, up and down for the rest of his life. No change, no hope of ever arriving at a goal. You can't see it in this depiction, but there are notches on the stone as if when he got to the top of the hill, he marked another notch, and then it rolled back down again, over and over and over again. No end. That's the absurdity of a life without purpose. Can you think of anything more miserable than that? I mean, whenever you're suffering, the thing that pulls you through it a lot of times is that old saying, this too shall pass. So without purpose, nothing passes. There's no end to anything, you see? Um, another example, the author George Moore tells about how during the Depression in Ireland, the government put peasants to work building a road. And he witnessed this. He said he saw the peasants at work building this road. They were singing songs, and there was some cheer about them. They were glad to be back at work. And then one day, they realized that their road was going nowhere, that the government had just created a job for them so that they could be busy and make a little money and then the song stopped, the cheer ended, all the energy drained out of them. And Moore said this, he wrote, The roads to nowhere are difficult to make. For a man to work and sing, there must be an end in view. I think that's true. What about you? When you know why you're doing what you're doing, it makes a huge difference. Another example, maybe you've heard of Viktor Frankl. Viktor Frankl was a psychiatrist, but he, before that, was a Jew who had been imprisoned in a concentration camp in Nazi Germany during World War II. And he survived that experience and got into psychoanalysis and um, wrote a book called Man's Search for Meaning. So the book is about what we're talking about today, finding purpose in life and living with purpose. And he wrote a lot of really good things in that book. Here's one of them. He says, I consider it a dangerous misconception of mental hygiene, mental health, to assume that what man needs is equilibrium or homeostasis, a tensionless state. So what he's saying there with those big words is 
he doesn't think it's healthy to just be trying to find peace in life, absence of con- absent of conflict. He said, you're going to be mentally ill if all you're doing is trying to make everybody happy and calm everything down and avoid conflict. He, he goes on to say, what man actually needs is the striving and struggling for some goal worthy of him. Um, have you ever worked towards achieving something, maybe at work or in a hobby that you're doing, something in life that's really big, and you get to the end of it, and you realize that the journey was more enjoyable than the, than the end? That's kind of what Frankel is talking about here. He's saying, we need to struggle. It reminds me of Jacob when he wrestled with the angel, and the angel gave him a new name, Israel, what does the name Israel mean? Strives. And you look at that and you scratch your head and wonder, how is that a blessing? God gave Jacob the blessing of striving, of struggling. And there are all kinds of applications. The struggle of faith, conflict with evil, even the struggle with with God and allowing God to win and bless you. But it's all related to this. Uh, Frankel survived the concentration camps, and he said he noticed those who gave up and died versus those who made it through. He said the one difference is the ones who made it through, he, he said something like you can survive any what if you have a why. And what he meant by that is they had meaning in their life, And the meaning didn't have to be some grand scheme. He found that even if the meaning was to try to give the children games to play or something small like helping people find shoelaces, if somebody in that concentration camp had a job, had some reason to keep going, it made all the difference in their attitude. So life without purpose is really, really difficult. And there's no reason for any of us to live a life like that because God has given us a purpose through Jesus Christ. Um, All right, let's talk about this. With purpose comes power. Ralph Waldo Emerson said, The power of the Gulf Stream will flow through an ordinary drinking straw if the straw is placed parallel to the flow of the stream. What do you think about that? If you, if you set the straw perpendicular, it's just going to wash away. But if you hold it aligned with the flow, it can harness that power. And the same thing is true of our lives. If we line up with God's purpose, His power will flow through us and work through us. And that's what we want to do. That's what righteousness is. It's being right with God, rightly aligned with God. You can't change God, but you can line up with Him and you can channel His omnipotence through your life. And that's what we need to do. Divided purpose divides your power. If you... um, 
don't know if you want to follow Baal or God, you're going to divide your power. You're going to weaken yourself. Look at uh, Matthew chapter 6, verses 22 and 23. Jesus said, The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? Look over that again. The eye is the lamp of the body. And he says, if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. Does anybody have a word there instead of healthy? Maybe in the King James? Single. Single. That's technically more accurate. The reason a lot of translations go with healthy or clear is because the, the contrast here is to an eye that is bad. And so they think, well, an eye that is bad is an eye that is unhealthy or blurry. So single doesn't make a whole lot of sense. It must be clear or healthy. But really, the word he uses there literally means single. And uh, that's the better translation. He could be saying singleness of purpose, having your eye on the most important thing and keeping your eye on the most important thing will bring health to your whole body spiritual health, and that light of God's joy and peace into your life. Singleness of purpose. But if you divide that up, you see, you're going to diminish your power. Here's another example. Go to 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3 through 6. Paul's writing to Timothy here, who's a minister. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. If you make a commitment to the military, you're going to be living that life 24-7. Full and total commitment. The word entangled here has an interesting background in shepherding. It, it was used a lot of a sheep whose wool would get entangled in nettles or, or briars. And when a sheep got in that condition, it was completely helpless, exposed to the elements and uh, wild beasts. And if the shepherd didn't come and cut it loose, it would die. So you think about that. A soldier can't get entangled in civilian pursuits. He's got to make a choice. Civilian life or military life. To be a good soldier and make a 100% commitment. So Paul goes on with some other examples. After the soldier, he says, An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. So if you're going to play a game, you can't make up the rules as you go along. The game's just not going to work. You've got to make 100% commitment to the game. Another example, it is a hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. There's no crop that's going to come up for a lazy farmer. You have to do the work. You have to till the ground, plant the seed, fertilize the soil, make sure it's watered and irrigated and tended to. If you let it go, 
fallow, you're not going to have a crop. And all of these examples, the soldier, the athlete, the farmer, it's all about knowing your purpose and sticking to that one thing above all else. So what are you? Are you a Christian? Are you a business person? Are you a, a, a friend? Are you someone who's popular at work? You know, what is your identity? What's your number one thing? And you need to find that to find your purpose. If you divide it up, you're going to diminish your power. And we often lack purpose because we spread ourselves too thin. And what we need to do is eliminate some things that are really not essential to our lives. I like this statement by Lin Yutang. Besides the noble art of getting things done, there is the noble art of leaving things undone. He says, the wisdom of life consists of the elimination of non-essentials. That sounds great when you're sitting in Bible class, right? But man, is it hard when you start trying to put it into practice. I mean, just try cleaning out your closet. All right, just something like that. I'm going to clean this out. There's stuff in there I hadn't worn in five years. And then you pull that coat out that you haven't worn in five years, and you're about to put it on the thrift store pile. And you say, you know, that's not a bad coat. You know what I'm talking about? It's really hard to cut things out to get to your purpose. That's why so few people do it. But you've got to cut the clutter in order to get there. And, and what we're talking about here, the, it's not hard to choose between the good stuff and the bad stuff. There are some things that are easy to throw out, right? The, well, not for everybody, but for people with shoes that have a hole in them, you know, that's an easy thing to throw out. But uh, the hard thing is making the choice between that which is good and that which is best. We have two good options. Can you pick the one when they're conflicting and your power is being diminished? Can you pick the one that aligns with your, your highest purpose? And this is the problem of Martha, right? Let's go to Luke chapter 10. Jesus comes to the house of his friends, Mary and Martha. He's there to, to eat, but he's also there to teach. And so you have two good things there, right? Serving dinner or listening to Jesus. Is there anything wrong with serving, hosting, cooking, helping other people, feeding other people? Not at all. But what if Jesus is teaching? That's what Martha was faced with. So look at Luke 10, 38. As they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. Okay, she was divided. This is what we're talking about. She had a divided purpose. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha. You are anxious and troubled about many things. See, she, she was floundering at this moment. 
She had a lot of good things in her life and too many to handle. He said, one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. So Mary did the tough thing. I don't think Mary was a lazy person. I don't think Mary intended on not having dinner ready at some point in the day. But when Jesus started teaching, Mary dried her hands off and went and sat down to listen to the Lord. Uh, because she knew he wouldn't be with her forever. This was an opportunity. This was the number one thing. She was able to eliminate the non-essentials. Yeah, there's a time and a place for everything. And uh, we got to be able to discern those times. Uh, listen to this from Paul. This is a prayer that we all need in our lives. Um, Paul says, and this is from the NIV, This is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. I think ESV says, approve what is excellent. But the NIV brings out the language we're using to dis discuss purpose. Paul wants us to be able to discern what is best, even from that which is good. It's a hard thing to do. So what is your purpose in life? In order to, to know that, you need only look at where you're spending your money, your time, your energy, and you can see what you're living, how you're living, whether you're floundering. If you're not floundering, what your purpose is, it's where you're spending all of your resources. And then really quickly, two things will help you get purpose in life or correct your purpose in life. And the first thing is vision. Uh, vision is the ability to see into the future, not prophetically, you know, I'm not talking about magic tricks here, but looking on down the road at a picture of what the Lord wants your life to look like. You can read the Bible and see what you need to grow into, and then people with purpose can see that future. I think the biblical word for that is that hope. So look down the road. What kind of a Christian do you want to be? What kind of a father or mother do you want to be? What kind of a, a brother or sister in Christ do you want to be? And uh, picture that. And studies have shown in all areas of life, whether you're talking about athletics or art or business, that the people who can see where they're going, who have vision, are the most successful. So that's the first thing. And I had some points under that that we don't have time for. But the second thing that gives you purpose is our goals. Okay, and a goal is nothing more than a bridge from your current self to your future self. From your present you to the you of your vision. That's what a goal is. Don't get them mixed up. Sometimes you make the goals before the vision. Well, that's like building a bridge to nowhere. I mean, you might get lucky and build the bridge that ends on the other shore, but also, you might accidentally get to the end of your bridge and find that you're in the middle of the stream. And so look beyond first 
Who do I want to be? Where do I want to be? What do I want to be? And then start setting up goals. And there's going to be more than one. List them down, whatever works for you. What does it take to get to that vision for your life that God has given you? And if you have those two things, that will bring purpose into your life. All right, does anybody want to make a comment or anything as we come to the end? Linda. And also, Linda, on the flip side, people that live long lives, I've noticed a common thread. They know their reason for being here. They believe that they are useful in old age. They know what um, they're here for. They know what they can contribute. And I think uh, there's a lot of articles you can read on people who live over 100 years. And, and I've read a lot of those. And, and a lot of them will say, I have a reason to get up in the morning. You know, it's just something as simple as that. And retirement is hard because in our culture, it's all about, you know, preparing for work and then working. And they don't tell you a whole lot about what you're supposed to do when you finish your work because our identities are wrapped up in our careers. But that's not what the, the Lord is wanting to go beyond that. He, your identity is not your career. Your identity is Christ. And there's so much that you can do, whether you're in that stage of life where you have a career or not. That's right. That's a good example. Anyone else? All right, that's about all our time, so I appreciate it. We'll pick up with another attitude next week.